Self-salvation. If you're looking for a main idea or a title today, self-salvation, every generation is tempted to find ways to rescue ourselves from the impact of sin in the world, attempting to save ourselves from pain and death. Only by turning to God in repentance and resting in his grace can we find salvation. I was at a funeral of a friend, a guy who used to be an elder in a church that we pastored. It's kind of a church that gave history and gave birth to this church. Uh, he, was a, he was an elder at Park Church, went to his funeral yesterday. Some of you were there. Uh, and, I, and I got to hear, really, there was a mixed, it was a mixed crowd. It was probably 75% Christians that were there. And they were from uh, Elder Auto Park Community Church, if you're familiar with that. Park Church was kind of a birth, it was kind of a restart of that from generations here, from Revolution, which is a church plant out of El Dorado, um, the well, which was kind of someone we sent out to lead a church plant like five years ago. There was this collective of churches. Uh, one lady who uh, is, she lives local here, she said, you know, it's, I see like this full circle in all the pastors that are here today. There's like 75% of the people that were affiliated to one of those churches, and it was really cool. I get to see people that I haven't seen in a little bit, and people you just run into once in a while. Then there was this other 25% of the people, and many of them were business contacts, maybe some family members of Larry. And if you know Larry and Lisa Schufelt, uh, Larry was amazing. I mean, like, that's an understatement. Larry was incredible. He was an incredible man of faith. He'd been a Christian for about 25 years lived most of his life apart from God. He was older as he passed. He passed from a series of strokes and health issues. The people that spoke, one of his business partners and family members spoke, and they spoke of him as a very religious man and a, a very, and just, I, you've all heard people outside the faith speak about people of faith. And they kind of fumble for words necessarily to, you know, maybe we're, we're comfortable speaking in that language, if you will. We might share about our faith or share about Jesus or share about something we're more comfortable speaking about. But they're, they're trying to give words to who he was apart from having that faith himself. Does that make sense? And what they really gave rise to was that he was a very positive thinking person. He was a very uplifting person. He was a cup half full or actually a cup runneth over kind of person. But when they got to his faith, they struggled to necessarily understand what his faith really meant. Does that make sense? It's because they live in a world of trying to rescue themselves from the pain and the suffering and the death of the world. And so when they see a religious person, what they see is, well, this person has chosen this pathway in order to address the woes of the world, if you will, right? This is their track that they run on. I'm not on that same track, but I see the benefits of this. Here's the problem. Oftentimes, Christians do the same thing. Yesterday, Pastor Charlie, who used to be on staff with me, he was, a, he was our youth pastor for a while, and then he went out with a heart to plant a church, and so he was going to do an internship and a church plant, ended up leading that church plant. Uh, that's where Larry went to go help him. He was very clear on the gospel yesterday. But this is not a gospel of good works. This is not a gospel of try harder. This is a gospel about what Jesus has done for us, not what we do for him. Charlie was very clear to make sure that the gospel was not confused by the things that others said about Larry, though they were true. God's doing the same thing here. He's warning us about when we get in there and we interfere, when we try and add to or take away from what Jesus has accomplished on our behalf. 
when we try and self-save ourselves or you know, self-satisfy our salvation needs, or even when we try by our own methods, our own self, to please God, we drift into this area. And each generation does this. We're not exempt. Okay? So, if you're here, that's what we're going to dive into. If you're watching online today, we're glad you're here. Again, as the video said, please check in. Please like it. That's the camera. If you're looking at what I'm looking at, that's the camera. Thanks, Lucky. and so we're going to really press into how do, and I want you to ask yourself this question, how do you attempt to save yourself or rescue yourself from the world? What are the things that you do that, may, that give you security or peace or comfort in this world? Verse 1, chapter 30, Isaiah 30, verse 1, it says, Ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord. Let's pause there for a minute. At the beginning of these chapters, here for the last three chapters, there's been four woes, what we call woes. A woe is a great, uh, a great sorrow or distress. When I say woe to you, it's when, when a prophet says that, not me, but when, when a prophet says that, he's saying, listen, great sorrow and distress is headed your way as a judgment from God to you for whatever he tells you you're doing. The word ah here is oddly translated to ah. Next chapter, the same word we translated as woe. And so just, I want you to hear, this is a, when you hear awe, stubborn children, you hear more of a frustration rather than something bad is coming your way. It's the same word he will use in the next chapter to say, listen, great sorrow, great distress is headed your direction because of what you're doing. He says, awe, stubborn children, declares the Lord, verse one, who carry out a plan, but not mine, and who make an alliance, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin. This is a powerful, powerful opening sentence. So you make a plan. It's not my plan. Like you're actually putting effort into something that is not my way. Right? Oh, you're making an alliance, but not with me. You're aligning with people. You're aligning with humanity. You're aligning with the things you think are right. You've got a plan, but it's not my plan. You have an alliance, but that alliance is not with God. He says you're adding sin to sin. Consider this as we address the sins of the world, as we address brokenness in humanity, as we address the pain that we endure, as we address the the problems in relationships, marriages, raising children, workplace, neighborhood, whatever it might be. What we're doing is we're addressing the problems caused by sin. If we were perfect people and our neighbors were perfect people, we would get along, right? We go one step further. If we were perfect and our spouses were perfect, it'd be easy, right? And if we had perfect children, no problem. We're dealing with sin, right? Yes, it would be nice. Yes, it would be, right? But if we had perfect children, who would raise them? Because we're imperfect, right? So it's like there's no perfect church. Otherwise, we wouldn't be allowed in, right? It's we're dealing with sin. We're dealing with brokenness. As they're dealing with sin, as they're dealing with brokenness, they're adding sin to sin. That's what he's saying. You're adding more sin to the problem. As you try and solve the problem, you're trying to solve it with sin. You're adding sin to sin. Verse 2. He's talking to them, you, in other words, who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction. There's their plan. To take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh. There's their alliance. And to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. So if you're maybe our guest today or you haven't been here in a couple weeks, 
God is telling, in this case, Judah, the, the kingdom of Judah, Israel and, and Judah are both a kingdom that separated now two kingdoms. Supposedly, the people of God would have become very disobedient. He's told them, listen, I've been telling you for hundreds of years now to return to me, but you haven't been listening, and so now is the time, here is the day, I'm going to execute judgment on you in order to course correct you and bring you back. And here's the judgment. I'm going to use the Assyrian army, who is an empire that's been growing in your area, and they're going to come in and they're going to wipe out your nation. And they're going to kill anyone who gets in their way until you return to me. And so they've been fighting little battles and little skirmishes with, with Assyria already, and they're losing. And so really, they have a choice. Either they can continue to fight and lose, they can give up and just suffer the consequences of Assyria, or they can go and align themselves with other nations, which is what they're trying to do with Egypt, or, imagine this, they could return to God. Now, what way sounds a lot easier than all the rest? Like, it seems easier to turn back to God, right? But before we judge the people in the story too fast, we do the same thing, right? And so, again, there's, all these, there's these options, and they're limited. They're going to lose, they're going to surrender, they're going to align with someone else, or they can return to God, and they're trying everything else other than returning to God. Verse 3, Therefore, shall the protection of Pharaoh turn to your shame, and the shelter of the shadow of Egypt turned to humiliation. For though his officials are at Zoan, his envoys reach Hanes, everyone comes to shame through a people that cannot profit them, and brings neither help nor profit, but shame and disgrace. Here's what's going on. God is judging them for their sin. God is judging them for their rebellion away from him. He is using a nation or an empire called Assyria, but he's judging them. So they can align with everybody on the planet, he made the planet. That's his point. Like, you can try all you want to, but I'm going to do this, and you can't overcome me. Though you may somehow overcome Assyria, you might join with Egypt, you will not win. And I won't let Assyria be overcome because I'm using them as a tool of, of, of judgment against you. So he says, you're doing this in vain. You're trying this, but it won't work. So there, it's like our, today's problem, as we were talking about earlier, is just trying to find that salvation apart from God. So here's a, here's a note for you. And again, these are all in the app. Egypt is Judah's way of ignoring God. They're losing a fight against Assyria. They don't want to surrender. But rather than turn to God, they choose an alliance with Egypt. We have our own ways of self-salvation. Good deeds, comfort in this life, and, and that I'm thinking like finance, home, family, education. You fill in your own blank for the comfort. Uh, good deeds, comfort in this life, etc., that are ways of ignoring God, right? We have our own ways of ignoring God. We have our, our, our own process, just as Judah has a very clear one that you can see what they're enduring, you can see what God is doing. From the outside, it's often out, from the outside easier to see, but we have our own ways of doing this. We find our own comfort in different things, but we do the same thing. In fact, we'll unpack a little bit of that later on in the message. Verse 6, an oracle on the beast of the Negev, through the land of trouble and anguish, from where come the lioness and the lion, the adder and the flying fiery serpent, they carry their riches on the backs of donkeys and their treasures on the humps of the camels, to a people who cannot profit them. Egypt, Egypt's health is worthless and empty, therefore I have called her Rahab who sits still. 
So there is a desert space between Judah and Egypt called the Negev. And what they're doing is they're sending off piles of money on the backs of camels and donkeys to pay Egypt. Hey, we're going to send this to you. Will you come and protect us? And so God is just speaking directly to what they're doing. Hey, you're ignoring me. And what you're doing is you're sending off money on animals to them. But I'm going to make Egypt like Rahab who sits still. Now, Rahab, if you are a Bible person, you hear Rahab Maybe you think of an Old, an Old Testament woman in the Bible. That's not what they're talking about. Rahab is a mythological creature in Egypt. And so he's saying this, like Rahab, this mythological creature or God, I'm going to make like that sitting still. That's what I'm going to make Egypt. Right? So I know if you're, if you're familiar with the Bible, Rahab jumps out and you remember Rahab from the Old Testament Genesis, right? That's not it. Rahab is also this mythological God in Egypt. So I'm going to make Egypt like like this idol that sits still and does nothing. So you send off all your money you want to, you build all your alliances you want to, but it won't profit you, he says. I'm gonna make them like an idol, like, a, like a, a wooden or golden idol who just sits there and could do nothing for you. Verse eight, God speaking to Isaiah says this, and now go, write it before them on a tablet and inscribe it in a book that it may be for the time to come as a witness forever. So. Isaiah is, uh, God is giving Isaiah this, this judgment and this prophecy to write down. So uh, you got to understand, Isaiah, much of what Isaiah did was go and speak to the people. And he would take this message, this prophecy, and Isaiah is a, again, it's 66 chapters. It's a large book, right? It is one of the, the uh, one of the clearest Old Testament prophecies of Jesus. Like Jesus comes up in almost every chapter as they're anticipating God's salvation to come to fruition in the Messiah, as they're anticipating this. When we return, probably, uh, probably next year, uh, hopefully we can time this really well and we can get this near Good Friday, but Isaiah 52 and 53 is the clearest promise of the crucifixion of Jesus, so clear that people swore for years it could not have been written before Jesus until they found a copy of it that had been buried for hundreds of years before Jesus was alive. So this is this clear proclamation of what God is doing. But he's telling Isaiah, listen, though you're to go and tell it to the people, I want you to write it down for generations to come. A couple weeks ago, we said something. Can I have that next slide? A couple weeks ago, we talked about there's two ways to learn, either learning from others or making our own mistakes. God is outright telling Judah that this is written down so others can learn from their mistakes. Hey, Isaiah, write this down. I want others to see this. I want others to have the opportunity to take this and understand it and apply it to their lives as well. Here's what it looks like when we do everything we can except return to God. Right? Here's what happens when we try and fight it ourselves. Here's what happens when we're afraid to quit. Here's what happens when we try and align with other things just to ignore God. Here's what it looks like. Isaiah, I want you to write this down. I want generations to come to read this and apply that to their setting. Verse 9, it says this, For they are rebellious people, lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord. How often does that sound like us? How often do we, do we just know that God has told us the right thing to do, we just don't want to do it, Right? How often we just wish there was another way or try and convince ourselves that the way we want to go is the right way. Verse 10, 
talking about these people who refuse the instruction of the Lord. He says, verse 10, he says, who say to the seers, do not see, and to the prophets, do not prophesy to us what is right. Listen to this. Speak to us smooth things. Prophesy illusions. Leave the way. Turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. He says, this is what you're saying. I want you to tell us nice things, not hard things. I want you to prophesy illusions. I want you to tell us other things are going to be the outcome. I want you to leave the path God has said. He's telling this to the people that should be leading them and teaching them about God. The people are saying, listen, I want you to leave the way that God has called you to. Right? I'm done hearing about the Holy One of Israel. I'm done hearing about what God wants. That's where their hearts are. I love that line. Speak to us smooth things. I told you a story last week about a friend of mine who was teaching in another church, and he had a rotation where he taught every once in a while, and, and, and the board came to him and just said, listen, when, when you teach, man, you, we feel convicted of sin, and we really don't know what to do with that. Can you stop that? He said, no, 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 I can't, you know? And we're like, no, right? I remember in restarting a church, a church that had been struggling for many, many years and getting ready to restart this thing, and we'd go in, and, and, and really we're... we're beginning to teach in a different way again. And literally, I got asked this by someone like, do we have to use the Bible every Sunday? <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's all I got. I got one bullet in the gun. It's the Bible. I mean, that's it. That's all I got, right? And if this is an issue, you're really not going to like me. So, you know, I mean, like, it's a, it, yes. And it sounds crazy, but it's not even original. Hey, say to us smooth things. Listen, I spent probably about an hour in this, just kind of derailed, looking at things, looking up the biggest churches in America and what they say. We're not going to go there today. I'll give you that as you want to go figure that out on your own time. Listen to the messages coming out of there. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about like if, if, if all you ever hear in a, in a church is messages that make you feel good, either you're not listening or they're not biblical. So something to that effect, Right? But that's what people want. Like, just tell us nice things. Just tell us three steps to a better marriage, because really, that's all we want. But tell me 10 steps to a more godly. Like, just tell, just give us the things that the power of a positive message. Just give us something that makes us feel good. That's what they're saying. But again, this takes place in the New Testament, too. Paul writes to Timothy this in 2 Timothy. He says, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers who suit their own passions. And will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. We're never going to get anywhere if we don't deal with the things that we're doing that are not pleasing to God. And we're never going to figure out in our lives what is not pleasing to God unless we really go back to Scripture over and over again with a willing heart of what do we need to change God to, to glorify you more in our lives. Like we have to deal with sin. Sin is the root of the pain that we feel. It's the root of the brokenness of the planet that we live on. It's the, it's the root of the relationships that we're in that don't work right. Even our best relationships. My wife and I always say, you know, marriage is amazing, but it's not easy, right? It, it's two broken, crazy people trying to live together forever, right? I always tell young people, like, choose the kind of crazy you can live with for the rest of your life. <laughs> They're all crazy, Right? I say that to men and women, mostly dudes, but you know, I mean, like, hey, they're all crazy, right? Choose the kind of crazy you can live with. 
Choose the flaws, man, that don't really just upend everything for you because there's flaws. And they're not going away. They'll change, right? We want people to tell us what we want to hear, but what we want to hear is that we're right, everybody else is wrong, and we don't have to change. It's not the truth. Therefore, says the Holy One, verse 12, therefore says the Holy One of Israel, because you despise this word and you trust in oppression. In other words, you trust in people that have enslaved you in the past, like Egypt. You trust in oppression. I know, that's crazy, right? You trust in oppression and perverseness and rely on them. Therefore, this iniquity shall be to you like a breach in a high wall, bulging out and about to collapse, whose breaking comes suddenly in an instant. And its breaking is that like a potter's vessel that is smashed so ruthlessly that among its fragments not a shard is found with which to take fire from the hearth or to dip up water out of the cistern. So here's Judah's first plan. Judah's first plan to ignore God is align with Egypt, right? We're gonna align with another nation. Now remember, Egypt used to be an empire, but Egypt has been declining and declining and declining. But Judah, willing to align with Egypt, thinks, well, maybe us and another declining nation can somehow take on the biggest empire on the planet right now. Like, I know it doesn't make sense, but none of what they're doing makes sense. None of what we do often makes sense, right? Here's their first plan, Egypt. Here's their second plan. The walls of Jerusalem are really tall. That'll stop them, right? That's their plan. He says, listen, I'm gonna make that like these big giant walls that are bulging in the center, and all of a sudden your, your plans are gonna collapse all around you. And they're going to collapse so bad, it's going to be like a, like a pottery, like a jar of pottery that's smashed on the ground, and none of the pieces are even big enough to pick up and draw water with. That's what I'm going to do to plan B for you. Now, here's plan A. Clearly, that didn't work. Here's plan B. Here's what I'm going to do to plan B. But God is saying, to this, and saying this to them in the midst of the opportunity for them to change. Just as he speaks to us today with opportunity for us to change, right? Verse 15, for thus says the Lord of God, the Holy One of Israel, I love this, in returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength, but you are unwilling. Here's what he says, see, the, the, in the midst of this, Isaiah begins to proclaim the gospel. In fact, he's going to unpack, and we're going to close with this, he's going to unpack a gospel, like a kind of a step-by-step, -step, kind of how you come back and return to God. But he says this, he says, in returning and rest, you should be saved. Right? He's looking down through the history of time, the very words he has promised about Jesus to come. That the virgin shall give, have a child, that, that the Holy One of Israel, Emmanuel, shall come. He's been proclaiming this message of a Messiah to come that will happen like 750 years after he dies. But he's been proclaiming this and says, listen, like this message is so clear. God created you and loves you. Isaiah would tell you that. He keeps returning to how much God loves them. right? But sin has entered in and severed our relationship with God. He continues to tell them that. Right? That's, that's the gospel. God created you, loves you, designed you, knows how you're to function. You're, you're to be a, a, a worshiper of God, one who gives glory to God, not glory to self, not glory to others, but glory to God. But sin has entered in and has wrecked that. Isaiah has been promising a, a Messiah to come, that Jesus will come and enter into human history. Now, Isaiah may not say everything about this, but he points towards a Messiah who he knows will come and suffer in our place, 
who will live a life that we're called to live and yet die a death that we deserve and he does not? That he will die crucified on a cross for our sins? Isaiah will say that in 52 and 53. We'll get, again, we'll get to that next year. Isaiah will preach that message. He will preach that, I, that Jesus will raise from the dead to give us new life. Isaiah is proclaiming the gospel just, just before Jesus comes to fulfill it. He's taken the message of God that God has been giving since flaws and since the failure in the garden. Since the time centered into human his, sin entered into human history, God has been proclaiming a message of redemption. That instead of letting us go and letting us run headlong into our sin with no return, that God is a relentless, loving, pursuing God. You hear the words he's saying, listen, I'm waiting for you, he says. Like, my love is for you. I'm warning you. In fact, I'm going to, I'm going to judge you with a nation around you just to get you to return to me. There's a loving God pursuing unwilling people. He says this, for thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, verse 15, in returning and rest, you shall be saved. In quietness and trust shall be your strength, but you're unwilling. All you have to do is return to me and rest in that. God calls us to return and rest, choosing words that create comfort in us. We tend to fight and struggle pursuing our own ways, even when God promises his ways are easier. What's easier, fight the Assyrians or repent and turn back to God? Ego is what's in the way. They're unwilling to change. And let's just be fair, so many of us are just unwilling to change. Some in big ways, some in small ways, but it's still that hardness of heart that prohibits us from a relationship with God that he desires. Verse 16 and you said, no, we will flee upon horses. Therefore, you say, flee away, and we will ride away on swift steeds. Therefore, your pursuers will be swift. A thousand shall flee at the threat of one, and at the threat of five you shall flee till you are left like a flagstaff on the top of a mountain, like a signal on a hill. So Judah's first plan, Egypt. Judah's second plan, big tall walls. Judah's third plan, we'll leave on horses. We'll run. He says, listen, you're going to run. And they're going to catch you. You're going to be left barren like a flagpole on the top of a hill. He gives them this image of just there will be nothing left if you keep running. Our plans are like Judah's. We tend to trust in national might, our own finances, job, education, etc., our own strength when all else fails. How is that different than Judah trusting in Egypt, walls, and horses? How is believing that what we have will rescue us from today, tomorrow, forever, any different than what they're doing? How is it, and this is a struggle inside a conservative-leaning Christian church in America, how is, it, how is the struggle not to believe that our national, that our patriotism, our national, how that that's going to protect us? How, how is that not a struggle in the, in the modern American church? How do, we, how do we separate ourselves from this is what makes us secure to God is what makes us secure? How do we, when we close our doors at night in our home, not rest in the fact that we set the alarm or locked our doors or own a gun or have big pit bulls? I'm just saying. The little one is like the motion sensor and the alarm. The big one's like the gun. <laughs> They're both good, right? 
How do we not trust in that? How do we not trust in our own strength? Right? I watched a friend. Uh, I didn't watch it happen. I've been visiting a friend who had a stroke two weeks ago. A really smart man, a really hard worker, a really sharp guy. Many of you know Tom Denton. And I watched as it took his speech away. I watched as stringing together two words in a sentence became too hard for him to do. He is progressing incredibly and is at home. Just so you guys know, uh, that's amazing. And many of you have been praying for him. But here's what I took away from that. He's four years older than me. That's what I took away from it. Whoa, that's exactly right. Is it stopped me kind of dead in my tracks? Like how much do I depend on the fact that I will have a job tomorrow, that I can perform in a job tomorrow, that that'll pay for the house and that'll care for my wife who can't do it? How much trust do I put in, in something I can control, I think I can control? Right, you can control everything up until that point that clot hits your brain, you have a stroke, right? You, you can't stop that. His wife's first thoughts were like, it's all done. Like everything is going, it's like it's stopped. Now he's healing and progressing and obviously they're thinking differently, but imagine the things you go through. We hear about the things, the stories on the news with different countries and different stuff going on and we trust in our own might. How are we any different? How are we any different than Judah? And how do we need to return and just trust in God? And again, I'm not saying don't lock your doors. I'm not saying don't have a strong military. I'm for all those things. That can't be our source of security. God must be our source of security. Verse 18, for the Lord waits to be gracious to you. And therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are those who wait for him. So I'm going to pivot this last, these last few verses and just ask this question. So how do we turn from our own self-salvation, our own trust in anything that's other than God? So a lot of it's self, a lot of it's comfort, a lot of it's the, the, you know, if it's, again, when we talk about the nation or whatever, how do we turn from trusting in stuff, trusting in creation, and return to trusting in the creator? But I love that language that comes out of Romans 1, that they have stopped worshiping the creator and they start worshiping created things, right? That's right out of Paul's words to the church in Rome. We do that. Whenever we worship something else, we're worshiping something created. And we're leaving worship of the creator. So how do we return? Isaiah is going to, in fact, it goes beyond this. We're just going to use part of it. But Isaiah is going to unpack a really simple how do we return kind of message. And so we'll break them down verse by verse. Verse 19, he says this. For a people shall dwell in Zion and Jerusalem. You shall weep no more. He shall surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears it, he answers you. As soon as he hears it, he answers you. I want you to hear this last part. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears it, he answers you. God is saying, listen, I've done everything necessary for you. What I'm waiting is, it's your move. Right? We'll put this up on the screen for you. Jesus has already done everything necessary for our redemption. Too often we keep waiting on God to show us more. God has provided for us. We just ask for help. God moved first. We need to respond. That's true if you're, if you're here and would not call yourself a believer today. That's true. God's done everything necessary for you. And he doesn't exist to prove himself to you. 
Now, God's a loving God. He's been speaking to Israel. He's been speaking to Judah for years, for generations. Don't let that be you, but he's been doing that. He exists. He, he, he loves you. He desires that you would return to him. If you've never made that step of faith, he wants to reveal himself to you. But at some point, he's like, listen, I've done everything necessary. It's your move. Right? I've done everything required. Now it's time for you to take that step of faith. And then I'll move again and again and again. But at some point, God's like, listen, man, I don't exist just to dance and show you that I'm real. Like I've done all that. I became flesh and lived and died and rose again. And hundreds of people saw it. Like over 500 people saw that. And then people that used to run and deny this message of Jesus would go on after seeing that and give their lives saying, no, 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 Jesus is alive. It changed everything about them. He says, listen, I've already proved everything. Your turn. It's your turn to take a step. He says, listen, he will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears it, he will answer you. As Peter goes on to proclaim the gospel in Acts, he says, it says this, Now when they, meaning the crowd, had heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. They hear the message. They believe in the resurrected Jesus, and they say, Okay, what do we do? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will be filled with the Holy Spirit. He says, God's moved. Now you move, and God moves in response. There comes a point in time where you have to make that step of faith, where God says, listen, I've done everything necessary, now it's your turn. It's your turn to trust me. Verse 20, it says this, and though the Lord gave you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teacher will not hide himself anymore, but your eyes shall see your teacher and your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. When you turn to the right or when you turn to the left, you remember last week, it says, listen, it's like you're staggering around drunk but without alcohol. It's like you're asleep and you can't hear and you can't see. You're spiritually blind. You're spiritually asleep. He's speaking in this. This is the very next chapter. Like, this is a thought for him, if you will. We have to break it down into bite-sized pieces so we can dig through it. But he's saying, listen, remember this. And then you make that step of faith towards God who's already been moving towards you, who's already prepared the way. And then he's going to open your eyes. And he's going to unplug your ears. He's going to wake you up from that sleep that you're in. So God does all the work. God calling us to respond does not mean we do the work. God empowers us to follow him. God enables us to respond. God leads and guides. He says you'll hear him behind you saying when to turn to the left and when to turn to the right. That verse is all throughout scripture. And then, of course, if you've been around for much time, this is my favorite passage in all of the Bible. It's Ezekiel 36. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is an Old Testament promise of the very same thing the apostles just said in Acts 2. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the Spirit, like you'll receive the Holy Spirit, like God's going to cause you in a new way. Ezekiel said it this way hundreds of years before that. He says, listen, God, as soon as you ask, God will take that heart of stone out and he'll give you a heart of flesh, one that can beat for him, one that can live for him. 
And he'll give you a spirit and he'll cause you to walk in his statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Listen, I'll cause you to do the right things. He doesn't forgive you and then it's like, okay, now's your turn. Time to white knuckle it. Try really hard. I'll do it. I put my spirit in you. I'll cause you to do the things you're called to do. He does all the heavy lifting. Remember, repentance and rest is what Isaiah is talking about. Not try real hard, be real moralistic, try to be a good person. It's just trust in God. Verse 22, we'll end here. Then you will defile your carved idols, overlaid with silver and gold-plated metal images. You will scatter them as unclean things. You will say to them, be gone. Listen, in the context of this, he says, ask, and I will hear you. Ask, and I'll respond. And when you do, I will cause you to do the right things. I will lead you and tell you which way to go. And when I do that, then you'll throw all the wrong things away. You'll cast away all the idols because I will have changed you. That's Isaiah's message. Repentance and rest. Obedience to God is about ongoing repentance, turning from sin and resting in God, allowing him to work in us or allowing his work in us. We try to live in our own strength, save ourselves, work hard to please God, all God desires is repentance and rest. Sometimes we hear these messages. Sometimes we hear like, oh, there's so much in my life that has to change. There's so much that's broken. There's so much that needs to be made new. And maybe we even get frustrated. Maybe we get overwhelmed. Maybe we're not sure what to do. Isaiah makes it very clear. Ask. Just ask God. Return to God. Rest in him. That's, that's, that's Isaiah's message. That's the message of the gospel. Just ask. Jesus, take over. Jesus, would you forgive my sin? Jesus, will you make me more like you? And God says, I promise to meet you in that moment. I promise to forgive your sin. I promise to put my spirit in you and equip you to live the life that I've called you to live. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. Because you did all the hard work. If we're honest, Jesus, it's because you did everything that, that we're even here. It's because you loved us first. It's because while we were still enemies of God, you gave your life. It's because when we're running headlong into hell, when we're running 100 miles an hour away from you, you're chasing us. It's because you love us. And because of that, you did everything necessary for us so that we could live for you. All we got to do is stop long enough just to, to hear your voice and ask. Forgive us when we've heard and heard and heard over and over again, and still we ask you to prove you're right. Take the blinders off our eyes, God. Take the, take the hardness out of our heart. Unplug our ears that we can hear your voice. And let us just return to you and rest in you. Let us learn that living in you is easier than all the painful options we, we work our way through. Let's learn that our faith and our salvation in you is much easier than we try and make it. And yes, it'll be a life of struggle. It'll never be perfect until we're with you face to face, but it's easier than we try and make it. Jesus, we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.